You're listening to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. I'm your host, Lee Keller. Today, we are unfortunately without John. He is in California for a friend's wedding, so hopefully you're having a great time there. John, don't drink too much. But our show today is full of injury notes and roster moves. A top prospect is being called up, and some studs are returning from the IL. There were a load of excellent performances this week, and later on, we'll be joined by pitcher list writer Colin Fong to talk about his article, It's Time for Salvi to Be a DH. So, without wasting any more time, let's get right into it. But before we get into the injury notes and roster moves, I'd like to remind all of you that you can follow our podcast on Twitter, at ThisWeekPL, and you can send us your questions, comments, and concerns to our email, ThisWeekPLPod at gmail.com. We love interacting with all of you, so make sure you send us tweets and emails about fantasy baseball. We would love to answer them on the podcast and have discussions about them if you have any questions, so make sure you do that. And lastly, make sure that you subscribe to or follow the podcast on whatever streaming platform that you listen to your podcasts on. We're on all of them, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. So make sure you drop the podcast a follow and give us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. Now, let's get into the injury notes and roster moves. There is quite a lot of them. First of all, Mike Trout of the Angels left Tuesday's game with left groin discomfort. He wasn't in the lineup on Wednesday or Thursday, but Angels interim manager Phil Nevin said that Trout doesn't seem too alarmed about the groin issue and doesn't think that he'll need to go on the IL. Hopefully Trout is okay and will return to the lineup soon. I remember last season he didn't think his calf issue was a serious problem, and then he missed the rest of the season, so let's hope it's not like that. Taylor Ward of the Angels is hoping to return from the IL on Tuesday, June 14th when he's first eligible. He's been out with right hamstring tightness. Max Muncy of the Dodgers was activated from the 10-day IL on Thursday, June 9th. He was on the IL with left elbow inflammation, but upon returning in his first game, he went two for five with two runs, a homer, and five RBI. Welcome back, Max. Andrew Heaney of the Dodgers pitched four and a third scoreless innings on Thursday in a rehab start for AAA Oklahoma City. He struck out five and allowed two hits in the outing. He's working his way back from left shoulder discomfort, and it's possible that he returns to the Dodgers rotation next week. Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers will be activated off of the 15-day IL and pitch against the Giants on Saturday, June 11th. He's been out since the middle of May with SI joint inflammation. Make sure that you activate him and put him in your lineup right away. Also, keep an eye out for when he's actually activated, because they originally said Sunday, then Saturday, so just keep that in mind. Lance Lynn of the White Sox is looking to rejoin the White Sox rotation next week. Lynn was decimated in his last rehab start, giving up seven earned runs in three innings, but he did throw 77 pitches in the outing. He's coming back from surgery to repair a torn tendon in his right knee. Tim Anderson of the White Sox is on track to begin a rehab assignment next week. He's likely to return sometime in the middle of June. Anderson's been on the IL with a right groin strain. Eloy Jimenez of the White Sox was pulled off of his minor league rehab assignment. He's still battling discomfort in his surgically repaired right leg. Chris Sale of the Red Sox has thrown a few bullpen sessions and is working his way back from a stress fracture in his ribcage. He's hoping to rejoin the Red Sox rotation sometime in July. Chris Bryant of the Rockies, with your usual weekly Bryant update, took dry swings on Wednesday for the first time since landing back on the IL. There's still no timetable for his return. Pete Alonso of the Mets was hit on the hand in Tuesday's game on June 7th. Fortunately, x-rays revealed no structural damage, and as Alonso said, he's dealing with the best-case scenario after being hit where he was on the hand. Consider him day-to-day for now. Starling Marte of the Mets also left Tuesday's game on June 7th, but with quad tightness. X-rays were negative as well, and he's also considered day-to-day. The Mets originally said that they likely see this as a trip to the IL, but the next day, Marte said that he doesn't expect to require an IL stint. So, just keep an eye on him. Max Scherzer of the Mets has begun throwing bullpen sessions again. He's been on the IL with a left oblique strain, and is currently ahead of schedule to return, which is always encouraging to see. Obliques are tricky though, so keep a close eye on Scherzer. He also got bit on the hand by his dog recently, but apparently it's no big deal, so it's been an unlucky stretch for Mad Max. Tyler McGill of the Mets is set to return to the Mets rotation on Friday against the Angels. 
He's returning from a 15-day IL trip due to right biceps tendonitis. Andrew Kittredge of the Rays was activated from the IL on Saturday, June 4th, pitched twice, and then was put right back on the 15-day IL for surgery to remove a loose body from his right elbow. We're not sure when he'll return, but Shane Boz, who we'll speak about shortly, missed about three months after the same surgery. J.P. Fireisen of the Rays was placed on the 15-day IL on Saturday, June 4th with a bone bruise on his right shoulder. It's unclear how much time he'll miss, but he's been great this season, so hopefully he comes back soon. Shane Boz of the Rays will make his season debut on Saturday, June 11th against the Twins. Boz was excellent in his first few major league starts last season and is returning from surgery in March to remove loose bodies from his throwing elbow. Like I said before, he missed about three months, so hopefully he comes back kicking as the top prospect that he is. Danny Jansen of the Blue Jays was placed on the 10-day IL with a fractured left pinky finger, and corresponding to that, Gabriel Moreno, the number four prospect in baseball, is being called up by the Blue Jays. He's a catcher with some big upside, so if you're in a two-catcher league, I'd probably take a shot on him. The playing time might be questionable, but hey, if he hits, he will play. Nelson Cruz of the Nationals was scratched from the lineup on Thursday, June 9th with back tightness. He apparently is going to get an MRI, and we'll see if it's a long-term issue or just a short-term issue. Steven Strasburg of the Nationals was activated from the 60-day IL on Thursday, June 9th after fully recovering from surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome. He gave up seven runs in four and two-thirds innings against the Marlins. Not good, but it's great to see Strasburg back in action. Tyler O'Neill of the Cardinals was activated from the 10-day IL on Tuesday, June 9th. He had a right shoulder impingement, but is healthy now, and since returning, he's gone four for 13 with a home run and three RBI. Jack Flaherty of the Cardinals began his minor league rehab assignment on Sunday. He fired three perfect innings, struck out three, and threw 30 total pitches. He'll need a few more rehab starts before rejoining the Cardinals' rotation. Carlos Correa of the Twins was activated from the COVID-19 list on Wednesday, June 8th. Since returning, he's gone three for six with three runs, a homer, and an RBI, so make sure that he's back in your lineup. Joe Ryan of the Twins gave up one hit over three scoreless innings and a rehab start for AAA St. Paul. He struck out four and threw 40 pitches. He's returning from COVID-19 and should be back after one more rehab assignment. Willie Adamas of the Brewers was activated from the IL on Wednesday, June 8th. His ankle and quad are all healed up, and he's back in the lineup for the Brewers. He went 0 for 4 on Wednesday, but went 1 for 4 with a solo homer on Thursday. Hunter Renfro of the Brewers was activated from the 10-day IL on Tuesday, June 7th. He missed a little over two weeks with a right hamstring strain, and on Thursday, Renfro homered. Brandon Woodruff of the Brewers has been on the IL due to a high right ankle sprain, but had his progress slowed by Raynaud's syndrome, which is an issue that causes decreased blood flow to the fingers and creates a problem with circulation. There's no timetable for Woodruff's return currently, and it's definitely something to monitor. That syndrome sounds a little scary, so keep an eye on Woodruff. Alex Cobb of the Giants was placed on the 15-day IL, retroactive to June 4th with a neck strain. Fernando Tatis Jr. of the Padres will have a CT scan on his wrist next week. The Padres are taking things extremely carefully with their superstar. If this scan on his left wrist looks good, we might get an actual timetable for when he'll return to action. Will Myers of the Padres was placed on the 10-day IL on Friday, retroactive to June 1st with right knee inflammation. Seiya Suzuki of the Cubs could be activated from the IL this weekend. Manager David Ross told reporters that he could join the team for their series against the Yankees. He's been sidelined since May 27th with a sprained left ring finger. Tyler Stevenson of the Reds has been diagnosed with a fractured right thumb and will miss around four to six weeks. Yikes, that's a big hit for fantasy managers since he's been doing very well so far this season. Hopefully he'll get back in the minimum amount of time. Jamer Candelario of the Tigers was placed on the 10-day IL on Tuesday retroactive to June 6th with a left shoulder subluxation. He's most likely going to miss an extended period of time, so if you had him rostered, throw him on your IL or feel free to cut bait. And last but not least, unfortunate news for Grayson Rodriguez of the Orioles, top pitching prospect in the game. He was diagnosed with a grade 2 right lat strain and is unlikely to pitch again until September at the earliest. He's most likely done for the 2022 season, which is a big bummer for the game's top pitching prospect. Get well soon, Grayson. Now let's move into recapping what happened in this last week from both hitters and pitchers. 
Just a reminder to everyone, we pull most of this information from the daily articles over on the Pitcher List website. The Batter's Box and SP Roundup articles are fantastic resources to read each day to see how players performed, so make sure you check those out on PitcherList.com. But getting right into it, over this past weekend on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, for the hitters, Lane Thomas of the Nationals on Friday, he went 3-for-5 with 3 home runs, 3 runs, and 4 RBI. Thomas was only slashing 195, 255, 325 heading into this game, but had a lot of hype going into this draft season due to the tear that he went on at the end of last season. He had 7 home runs and 6 stolen bases across 77 games, so rightfully, people were excited about him. However, he's been very lackluster this season and hasn't even had guaranteed playing time. However, this was a huge game for him, and since this game, he's played in 6 consecutive games, hitting in the 1 or 2 hole, and has been excellent. If you're in a 12-team league or deeper with 5 outfield spots, I'd take the flyer and pick up Lane Thomas. Pete Alonso of the Mets on Saturday went 3-for-5 with 2 home runs, 2 runs, and 5 RBI. Polar Bear Pete is looking like one of the favorites to win the NL MVP, especially if the Mets continue to win. The first home run that Pete hit was off of Walker Buehler, and the other was off of the filthy reliever Bruzdar Gratterall. Pete has a 282 average this season, accompanied by 16 home runs, 38 runs, and 54 RBI, as well as a stolen base. Alonzo still strikes out quite often, but his StatCast page is bleeding with red bubbles. He's a beast, and as a Mets fan, it's awesome to watch this guy play. Everything he does is the complete opposite of graceful, and it's incredible. If you've ever watched him, you know what I mean. He runs the bases like a 500-pound gorilla trying to find a banana in a haystack. It is absolutely wild. And Eugenio Suarez of the Mariners on Sunday went 3-for-4 with a double, a home run, one run, four RBI, and a walk. Suarez has actually been really good this season. After one down year and the Reds choosing to tank their season, they shipped Suarez to Seattle for cheap, and he's been great. Suarez has a .234 batting average, which is very close to the league average, which is sad, but that's a different story. 11 home runs, 31 runs, and 32 RBI. He's been batting in the fifth spot in the order for the Mariners and has third base and shortstop eligibility on Yahoo. His stat cast numbers don't look too great, but he's been barreling up the ball, and as long as he does that, he will hit home runs. It's what he's known for. And in one of the first podcasts that we did, I mentioned that Suarez is someone that you should pick up and use while he's on a hot streak. Well, it looks like he's returned to form and should be very serviceable for you in this fantasy season. As for the pitchers, we had a lot of starters pitch amazing on Friday. Garrett Cole, Nady Evaldi, Max Fried, Zach Eflin, who I'll talk about later, maybe in the streaming section, hint, hint. But I wanted to highlight Joe Musgrove of the Padres on Friday. He went eight innings, zero earned runs, one hit, three walks, and six strikeouts. He had eight whiffs, which isn't the greatest, a 28% CSW, and had a whopping 114 pitches thrown against the Brewers. The reason why the pitch count was so high is because he took a no-hitter through 7.2 innings pitched until Colton Wong doubled to center, ruining the possibility of a second no-hitter for San Diego Joe. If you saw on Twitter, there was a cool little moment where Colton Wong kind of nodded at Joe Musgrove knowing that he broke up the no-hitter and was like, man, great performance, and Musgrove kind of nodded back. It was really wholesome, and I just like that exchange. It's cool to see, so shout-out to Wong for being a class act as well as Joe Musgrove being a beast. But Musgrove has been phenomenal this entire season. He's got six wins, a 1.64 ERA, a .92 whip, and 64 Ks in 66 innings pitched. One of the best pitchers in the game right now, and it's great to see him dealing. Again, there were a lot of great pitching performances on Saturday. Drew Rasmussen, Nick Pavetta, Mackenzie Gore, and Jose Barrios with his 13 strikeouts. But I wanted to highlight Luis Severino of the Yankees on Saturday. He went seven innings pitched. No earned runs, one hit, one walk, and 10 strikeouts. He had a whopping 20 whiffs and a 34% CSW over 92 pitches against the Tigers. Severino's slider was immaculate in this start, generating 8 out of 24 whiffs with a 58% CSW on that pitch, which is just insane. He sat 96 to 97 miles per hour with the fastball and even touched 99 at some points. He's truly looking like he's returning to that ace form from 2018 and 2019. If you took a flyer on him late in your drafts this season, it is paying off immensely. He gets the Cubs next, and oh boy, have fun with that Chicago. 
And then Jacob Junis of the Giants on Sunday went six innings pitched, one earned run, two hits, two walks, and eight strikeouts. He had a 35% CSW against the Marlins. His sinker, slider, and changeup were all working against the Fish on Sunday. Junis is slowly starting to look like one of those awesome reclamation projects that the Giants tend to do. He has a 2.51 ERA, a .93 whip, and 35 Ks in 43 innings pitched so far this season. He gets the Dodgers this Saturday, so I probably wouldn't start him there. But man, he's been looking good this season. So keep it up, Junis, and keep an eye on him in fantasy because he is definitely a usable streamer and maybe a great deep league option for you. Moving on to Monday, June 6th, we have the Batters Box article, A Drury of His Peers by Josh Thuzat, referencing Brandon Drury, of course. However, we're not going to mention Brandon Drury here. We're going to talk about Eduardo Escobar of the Mets, who went 4-for-5 four with a single, double, triple, homer, 3 runs, and 6 RBI. As you can tell by what I said, Escobar hit for the cycle on Monday, which is the 11th cycle in Mets franchise history, and the first one in 10 years since Scott Hairston did it in 2012. Now, the one thing that's really cool is Escobar went single, double, home run, triple, but the home run came in the 8th inning, and the triple came in the ninth inning, which I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe he's the first person in MLB history to have the homer and triple come in the eighth and ninth innings of a game. So that is really cool. Shout out to Escobar for that. So far in 2022, Escobar has been pretty disappointing. This game really knocked him out of his slump, and recently he's been playing better. But if you drafted him in fantasy, you were probably hoping for 25 home runs and 160 combined runs in RBI. A third of the way through the season, he's batting 243 with 5 home runs, 28 runs, and 24 RBI, which puts him at roughly a 15-16 to 16 homer, 83-86 to 86 runs, and 73-76 to 76 RBI pace. So he's nearly giving you what you were expecting out of him, with a few homers less that you were hoping for. He has first base, second base, and third base eligibility on Yahoo, and I'd really only roster him in a deeper league, and if you need a middle infield or a corner infield slot filled... He's not really rosterable in shallow leagues, so cut bait on him in your 10-team, 18 leagues if you roster him there. And in deeper leagues, he's worthy of that middle infield or corner infield slot. Julio Rodriguez of the Mariners went 2-for-5 with a homer, 2 runs, and 2 RBI. Man, J-Rod is impressive. So far this season, he's batting 277, 332, 432, with 7 home runs, 26 runs, 26 RBI, and an MLB leading 17 stolen bases. He is looking like a true dynasty asset. This kid is extremely special. His StatCast page shows that he has a 90th percentile in average exit velocity, max exit velocity and hard hit percentage, as well as 98th percentile sprint speed. His only bugaboo is that he's got a 29.7% strikeout percentage, so you're hoping that comes down a bit, but with a talent like this, I'm sure it will. And lastly for the hitters, Santiago Espinal of the Blue Jays went 2-for-5 with a home run, a run, and 2 RBI. Espinal is a name that we haven't talked about at all this year, and he's quietly been really good for the Blue Jays. Marcus Semien who? I actually should probably hold that comment for the next day's recap, but Espinal has been hitting in the middle of the order for the Jays and has a 290 average with 5 home runs and 3 stolen bases. If you need help at middle infield or corner infield, Espinal has you covered with second base and third base eligibility on Yahoo. His expected stats are a little bit worse than what he's done. He has an XBA of 279 and he's currently batting 290 and an X slug of 389 while he currently has a 451 slug. So he's overperformed just a bit, but hey, as long as he's hot, you ride that hot hand. Now moving on to pitchers for Monday, thanks to the SP Roundup article Blake Erie by Nick Pollock. We've got Hunter Green of the Reds, who went seven innings pitched, no earned runs, one hit, no walks, eight strikeouts, with 17 whiffs and a 34% CSW against the Diamondbacks. This was technically a complete game shutout because the game got rained out and called after seven innings. Green earned himself a King Cole for the night with a 34% CSW and sat 97 miles per hour with his fastball. He is the ultimate coin flip because one night he'll give you this performance and the next night he'll blow you up for eight earned runs. I see Green as a serviceable streamer in eight and 10 team leagues and a solid end of the rotation guy in 12 team leagues and deeper. 
Michael Waka of the Red Sox, oh my God, went nine innings pitched, complete game, no earned runs, three hits, one walk, and six strikeouts against the Angels. This was an extremely impressive performance from a not-so-impressive pitcher. It's no surprise that the Angels are struggling, especially when you see a performance like this against them. Waka isn't someone that I'd run and rush to add after this. He's been really good so far this season, but his strikeouts have been low, and I just don't trust his stuff. I wouldn't consider using him for his next start on Saturday against the Mariners either, so probably wait and see on Waka. If he does well against the Mariners, I mean, I guess you take a flyer on him, but I just don't trust it. And last but not least, I really wanted to talk about Carlos Carrasco going 7 innings pitch with 2 earned runs and 10 strikeouts against the Padres, but I didn't want to come off as a super Mets homer, we already talked about Escobar and whatnot, so let's talk about the struggles of Robbie Ray. Ray of the Mariners went 5 innings pitched, 3 earned runs, 8 hits, 3 walks, and only 3 strikeouts. He had 10 whiffs and a 19% CSW on 98 pitches against the Astros. Now, the Astros are a great offense, but everything was off for Ray in this one. Instead of his four-seamer slider approach, he switched to a slider, sinker, and four-seamer approach. He threw 26 total sinkers for a 4% CSW, which is just horrible. The slider was still really good, but the change in approach was just baffling. Ray looked like he was getting back on track, but this outing certainly threw a wrench in things. He isn't looking like that ace that you drafted him to be right now, and I'm kind of worried about him, so we'll keep an eye out on Ray, and hopefully he can right the ship a little bit. Moving on to Tuesday, June 7th, from the Batter's Box article, A Semiennial Performance by Jim Chatterton. We start with Marcus Semien, the namesake of the article, of the Rangers, who went 7 for 8 with 3 home runs, 4 runs, 3 RBI, and 2 stolen bases. Remember when I said Marcus Semien who when mentioning Santiago Espinal? Well, here's who. <laughs> in a doubleheader against the Guardians, Semien put up an absolute monster stat line. In the last few weeks, Semien has really improved his total slash line, but he's been struggling as a whole for the season. We were never going to get that 40 home run season that he provided last season, but I can still see Semien hitting 20 to 25 home runs with 15 to 20 stolen bases. His advanced stats still look really awful right now. Legitimately, everything is blue except for the sprint speed. And I expect Semyon to still struggle, but this was a nice little flash of what Semyon could provide for you moving forward. He's also cut down on his K rate, which is now 16%, which is always a good sign to see. Joey Votto of the Reds went 2 for 4 with 1 home run, 2 runs, 3 RBI, and a walk. Since returning from the COVID-19 IL on May 20th, Votto has been one of the best hitters in baseball, and I'm not exaggerating. All five of his home runs this season have come since then, and he's had an OPS over 1,000 in that time frame as well. His OPS was actually at 430 on May 20th, and it's gone up to 744 by June 9th. Also, his average went from 128 to 209. That's insane. His numbers should actually be even better as well, being that he's gotten extremely unlucky. Juan Soto and Alec Thomas both robbed Votto of a homer in the span of three games. Votto seems to be breaking out of whatever slump he was in to start the season, and if an impatient manager dropped him in your league, be sure to pick him up. All formats, all league sizes, Joey Votto is doing that thing again. Also, Jazz Chisholm of the Marlins, who we talked about last week, hit two home runs and had six RBI, and Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves had two home runs as well. Moving on to the pitchers for Tuesday from the SP Roundup article, Understanding the Grayscale, referencing John Gray. We have Michael Kopech of the White Sox, who went six innings pitched, no earned runs, one hit, one walk, eight strikeouts with 13 whiffs and a 34% CSW over 98 pitches against the Dodgers. What a performance from Kopech. He was being hyped up this draft season because he had a role as a starter and is absolutely filthy. So far this season, he's been living up to that hype but the velocity has been down just a little bit. Regardless, he's got a 1.94 ERA, a .94 whip, and 51 strikeouts in 51 innings pitched. In this start, his velocity was up with the fastball being one mile per hour faster than usual. He didn't throw the curveball as often, and he had good command of his slider. If his fastball looks this good moving forward, he's going to be very, very scary, and you'll see those strikeouts go up and up and up. I mean, look what he did to the Dodgers. Next, we have Carlos Rodon of the Giants, who went four innings pitched, two earned runs, four hits, one walk, and five Ks. He only had eight whiffs and a 24% CSW against the Rockies. 
Man, Rodon has just not been good recently. The good news is he's healthy. The bad news is he's not missing bats like he normally does, even against a not-so-good offense like the Rockies. His velocity still looks alright and his command hasn't been horrible, but he's not doing the typical ace stuff that he was doing at the beginning of the season. You have to keep running Rodon out there for now and just hope that he works himself out. Now let's get into Wednesday, June 8th from the Batter's Box article, Let's Get It Started In Here, great title, by Dave Swan. We start with the namesake of the article, Bryson Stott of the Phillies, who went 4 for 4 with a double, home run, 3 runs, and 2 RBI. On Sunday, Stott crushed a walk-off 3-run homer for the Phillies, and then on Wednesday, he went 4 for 4 with another homer. Stott was the number one prospect in the Phillies organization and was the 97th best prospect in baseball in 2021, according to MLB's top 100 prospect list. He was drafted in 2019, so his path to the majors was actually pretty quick. He's only batting 188 currently, but pardon the rhyme, Stott has been red hot over the past seven games. If you need someone to cover your middle infield position, maybe look to Stott for now, but remember, he's a rookie and will likely experience some struggles along the way. Also, Gene Segura is out for a little bit of time, but when he returns and with the return of Didi Gregorius, Bryson Stott might not be up for the whole season, but if he keeps hitting like this and he starts working that out, maybe he stays on the roster. Jay Cronenworth of the Padres went 3-for-4 with a double, home run, 3 runs, 5 RBI, and a walk. In his last 36 plate appearances, Cronenworth is batting 323, 417, 677, with 3 home runs and 14 RBI. He's struggled for the majority of the season, but it seems that he's turned a corner in these past few weeks. He's got multiple position eligibility and is starting to heat up. Like Votto, if an impatient manager let Cronenworth go, scoop him up and enjoy the ride. And lastly, for hitters on Wednesday, we've got Kyle Schwarber of the Phillies. I know we mentioned two Phillies, but they both were really good. He went 4 for 5 with two doubles, two runs, and two RBI. I love Schwarbs. He was a must-have player for me this season after what he did in 2021 and then signing to the Phillies, who have a great park for offense. I was all in on him. I believe I drafted him in three of my five leagues, and I traded for him in one of the leagues that I wasn't able to get him in the draft. If you're in a standard 5x5 head-to-head or roto league, you're probably not impressed by his 209 average, but where he shines is in OBP leagues. He may have a low 200 batting average, but he has a 333 OBP, which is great, especially for someone with 15 home runs and 31 RBI. This was Schwarber's first four-hit game since he did it as a rookie in 2015. I expect tons of power out of Schwarber for the rest of the season. Now for the pitchers on Wednesday, we've got the SP Roundup article rolling the Fiedo. Sandy Alcantara of the Marlins went nine innings pitched, no earned runs, six hits, no walks, and six strikeouts with 17 whiffs and a 36% CSW against the Nationals. We might have to rename the podcast to This Week in Sandy Alcantara's Performance because we've been talking about him a lot recently, but how can you not? He's incredible. Nick actually released Sandy Crush t-shirts for sale on the Pitcherless website, and they're awesome, so go and get yourself one if you haven't already. I'm not even going to comment on the performance. He didn't get a win from this, which is just sad, but Sandy is a stud. And lastly, for the pitcher performances of Wednesday, we have Alex Wood of the Giants, who went seven innings pitched, one earned run, five hits, no walks, and five strikeouts against the Rockies. Hey, he finally did something. I'm not going to lie, I gave up on Alex Wood. In the two leagues that I had him rostered in, both were quality start leagues. I banished him to the Shadow Realm. He just never went six innings and always had a gross-looking line despite his stuff being very good. This start was against the Rockies away from Coors, so it makes sense that he carved them up. And hopefully he'll continue doing this moving forward. I am still in the depths with Alex Wood. I don't know. I want to believe him. I like the stuff, but he just doesn't give the numbers that you need for fantasy. So hopefully this actually righted the ship for him. He's got the Royals and the Pirates next, so he's looking like a great option for next week. And to wrap up the performances from this past week, we move to Thursday, June 9th. And we'll start with the hitters. Byron Buxton of the Twins went two for four with two home runs, two runs, four RBI, and a walk. Buxton, he's been on a tear recently, homering on June 3rd, June 8th, and twice on Thursday, June 9th. He was in a bit of a slump. I guess it wasn't really a slump, but he came back down to earth after his absolute fire start to the season. 
After the injury he sustained, he hasn't played in more than three games without getting a break in between, so that's a bit frustrating, but man, Buxton is a beast. Hopefully he can stay healthy and continue to give you that five-category production. And MJ Melendez of the Royals went one for two with a homer, two runs, two RBI, and two walks. Since we're having a discussion with Colin Fong shortly about Salvador Perez and how he should be a DH and not the catcher, I thought that it was only fitting that we talk about the guy who should replace him at catcher, MJ Melendez. He's been really impressive since getting called up. He's at a 259, 339, 463 slash line with five home runs, 13 runs, and 13 RBI. This kid is legit, and he'll definitely be the catcher for years to come for the Royals. Now for the pitchers on Thursday, we start with Shane McClanahan of the Rays. He went eight innings pitched, one run, which was unearned, so no earned runs, two hits, one walk, and nine strikeouts against the Cardinals. He only needed 94 pitches to get through eight innings and absolutely carve up the Redbirds in this one. McClanahan has arguably been the best pitcher in baseball this season. It's between him, Sandy Alcantara, and Corbin Burns at this point. Oh, and Martin Perez, of course. (laughs) It's great to see that the Rays have taken the kitty wheels off of McClanahan's bike and are letting him go a little bit deeper into his starts. He's gotten a quality start in each of his last six starts, so that's amazing to see. McClanahan also leads the league in strikeouts with 98 Ks in 72.1 innings pitched, which is phenomenal. McClanahan is a monster. And Shohei Otani of the Angels went seven innings pitched, one earned run, four hits, two walks, and six strikeouts against the Red Sox. What a great performance from Shohei, both on the mound and at the plate. He had a two-run homer in the fifth inning to give the Angels the lead and was dominant on the mound, holding the Red Sox to just one run. With this performance, Otani and the Angels were able to snap their 14-game losing streak, which, whew, if you're an Angels fan, you're happy to see that. It was a much-needed bounce back for Otani, too, who had a clunker in his last outing against the Yankees, so hopefully the two-way sensation can deliver more outings like this one moving forward. Also, shout-out to Nick Pavetta, who, although was charged with four earned runs, had a season-high 11 strikeouts, and Tyler Male for having another nice start against the Diamondbacks, going six innings pitched with 10 strikeouts and only giving up one earned run. But that is all for the performances from this past week. Now we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by pitcherless writer Colin Fong to talk about Salvador Perez. Stay tuned. All right, we're back and joined by pitcherless writer Colin Fong to talk about his article, It's Time for Salvi to Be a DH. Colin, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So before we get into everything, please let the people know how long have you been working at PitcherList? What team on PitcherList do you write for? What baseball team you root for? And your fantasy baseball experience. Let the people know all about yourself. Yeah, this this is my first year writing for PitcherList. I started this December. It's been a great experience so far. I am on the general baseball team, so doing the overall baseball coverage, the power rankings, the division recaps, and some of the daily recaps that we do, things like that. So it's been a lot of fun, a good excuse to watch more baseball. And as far as fantasy experience, uh, I was embarrassed to say joining, but this this is my first year ever playing fantasy. Um, so it's, it's been a lot of fun getting into it and sort of seeing seeing baseball from a different angle that way. Yeah, hey, we all start fantasy for the first time at some point in our lives. Yours just came a little bit later. It's okay. You should not be embarrassed. There's a lot of people that just started fantasy this year as well. So don't be too concerned about that because there's a lot of first-timers out there as well. Maybe some of the listeners as well are first-timers and are looking for an insight. And maybe it's nice to get an insight from someone who's also a first-timer. So also, I don't believe you said it, but what baseball team do you root for outside of fantasy? I am an Oakland A's fan, uh, for better and for worse, uh, <laughs> this year, this this year for worse. Um, but it, we'll see what happens. Uh, I've I've been watching their their stadium saga with with great interest. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I just hope they don't move cities. Yeah, that would be very strange. I heard a lot of rumors about Las Vegas and whatnot. So, I guess we'll have to see where the Oakland Athletics go on to and how their team will look. I mean, you guys have a lot of interesting and exciting prospects and rookies, but the team is just in shambles. Yeah, I mean they're they're essentially cicadas, right? Where they have, <laughs> yeah. they have their like five their five year cycles where they they trade everyone, sell off anyone who who they have to pay, and then you know get a new crop. Um, so we'll see. There's definitely there's definitely some intriguing players in in the pipeline, but it's 
uh, it's beginning of a rebuild for sure. Without a doubt. But your article today that we're going over is about Salvador Perez. Why did you decide to write about Salvador Perez and why it's time for him to be a DH? Yeah, uh, it's kind of a funny story. Um, to be honest, it, it started with laziness where uh, <laughs> getting, uh, applying applying for the uh, the position at Pitchless. I wrote about him. One of the prompts was, was about Salvador Perez. So I, I sort of had this piece about him and digging into his 2021 season just in my back pocket and was looking for ideas one day. Um, and... In researching that, I'd, I'd kind of noticed some of the trends I, I raised in, in the article uh, and went to look at how he's doing in 2022 and really noticed that those trends were continuing in 2022. So um, just went, uh, went ahead and, and wrote up the article and the trend basically being he does a lot better offensively when he's playing at DH. So Salvador Perez is so interesting because... He just came off of an outstanding season, literally an outlier season for the catcher position. I mean, he set records. He was absolutely awesome. And that really inflated his price coming into this season for fantasy. And he was going as high as the third and fourth round. And that's crazy. I mean, and I understood it. I was willing to pay that price in one league. I actually did. I got him in the fourth round and it felt right. It felt like the right thing to do. Okay. So mm-hmm. I was very excited about Salvador yep. Perez this year, but it's very interesting to see what he's been doing so far. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a lot of factors. I mean, the the crux of the article was, you know, <laughs> kind of leading off with that and the fact that a lot of people, pro- you know, it was it was less fantasy focused, but you understand why a lot of people bought high and looking at his his top light numbers are, you know, <laughs> painfully disappointing for all those <laughs> yeah. those those folks at this point, um, but. The split out by DH and catcher by what defensive position he's playing is a little bit more heartening. He, you know, it's his, his numbers at DH are significantly better uh, than they are at catcher, and and that is is the trend that I kind of identified. Where it's interesting, you don't even um, looking backwards at previous seasons. It's not just splitting out by. DH and catcher, but also by season halves, where when he's playing at DH, he he maintains his offensive performance, and if he's playing catcher for longer, then he tends to to nosedive in the second half. So obviously we're not there yet, and obviously um, you know he's not doing amazing at either position no, so right. far in twenty twenty two. But there there's signs of hope, I think, for for fantasy owners in in some ways. Right, so piggybacking off of that, since coming back from injury, Salvi's been incredibly disappointing, going 6-for-40 with two homers. The Royals have had him at DH for half of those games, and the results have been kind of mixed. Do you think this is just Salvador Perez shaking off some rust and still recovering, or is he actually taking a turn for the worse? Yeah, I'm, in, I'm inclined to say that it's this is just a guy who sprained his thumb 10 days ago, and he's, yeah. he's just... Yeah. He's a, needs to get back in the swing. You know, he, you know, today's game, he, he knocked a, knocked a single, managed the first triple that in however many years, I forget exactly what, what the headline, but he, he got a, he, he got a couple of hits today. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we, we expect these guys to come back from injury and just be themselves again. And they're human too. So I think I, I am in, of the opinion that he, he's still ramping up in the season. He's also no spring chicken, right? He's pretty old now. So I guess coming back from an injury kind of takes a little bit longer to get the gears turning, right? I mean, that's definitely true for me. I like stub my toe and it takes me, <laughs> you know, a week or two to, to get going. So. I was just saying this on the last episode where I turned 30 this year and I, I went to a bowling tournament in Vegas a few weeks ago and... After like nine games, I was exhausted. I'm in pain. I'm sore. So, so I totally get it that the right. recovery time is a little bit not as easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine. And um, yeah, he, I don't even. I can't even imagine playing baseball with a sprained thumb. And I mean, he was like trying to stay in and fight through it. But I can't imagine doing this podcast with a sprained thumb, let alone play professional yeah, exactly. baseball at the highest level. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't. I mean, you know, he's he's obviously working through some things this season. Um, but I don't, I don't think 
he's gonna i don't think he's gonna be a, a total wash i guess is, is what i'm saying yeah i don't think he's going to fall off a cliff either i think this is just him shaking off some rust if my opinion matters at all i think that it's just a little bit of a recovery time process and once he gets through that he should go on a tear hopefully very soon but we saw mj yeah. melendez top catcher prospect for the royals have a small breakout while salvador perez was on the il with that knowledge, as well as Cam Gallagher coming back from the IL, does this injury situation make more sense for the Royals to put Perez at DH based on the defensive metrics, or what do you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I uh, I think the the Royals at this point just need any offense they can get, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know I think they welcome that from from Melendez. Melendez is uh, you know just from looking at the fan graphs, sort of fielding metrics breakdown you know melendez isn't doing great by by that by that standard this yeah. year um perez certainly is, is better perez is you know one of one of the other points i made in the article was just that his his defensive values is declining over time to some degree and um acknowledging that defensive metrics for catchers are, are definitely an imperfect science but um especially in terms of how well he, he's able to sort of run down by balls and, and block balls in the dirt. He's, he's losing some of his value that way. That said, you know, he at this point um, has more defensive value than Melendez, but I think given where the Royals are um, and the fact that Melendez is a rookie, you kind of need to, give him more reps essentially be behind the plate and why not have both their bats in the lineup when you can, especially considering the return of Cam Gallagher as well um, from, from the IL, uh, the, the impending, I can't, I can't remember if he's actually back yet or, or will be soon, but right. Um, you know, you, that gives you, I think a good option to have two strong bat. If you have both Perez at DH and Melendez at catcher, all of a sudden you, you have two, good bats in the middle of your lineup um and then you can also have a, a good platoon with melendez and gallagher and having more reps back there i mean one of the one of the defensive metrics that stood out to me for melendez was his and i'm gonna probably butcher the pronunciation but our our rcera basically a measure of how well the catchers are handling their their pitching staff um you know he has negative four runs for for that metric and Yikes. to me that's a sign of a, a rookie catcher just needing to figure it out in the in the big leagues and you know you, you learn you learn by doing so i think for where they are you might as well just get both bats get get your rookie more reps and keep perez from from behind the plate um where he has more chances to hurt himself yeah i think what the royals can do as well is cam gallagher could play catcher I think right now, or while Salvi was on the IL, MJ Melendez was playing catcher, but also was playing the outfield a little bit. So if yeah. Mel if Melendez can just play the outfield some days when he's not catching, then you could have all three bats in the lineup and have a better defense behind the plate with Gallagher. You can have Melendez in the outfield, who's probably not going to be great, but at this point you just want his bat in the lineup because it's very good. And Salvi on DH, which he is statistically better at them when he's behind the plate. So I think you can make it work with all three of the players. And I think that's the way the Royals should go because they don't really have much other options for a DH rather than Salvador Perez, right? Like their lineup isn't the greatest. They've got some great prospects. Bobby Wood Jr., of course, MJ Melendez. They've got Andrew Benintendi still. They've got Whit Merrifield, but they don't have a lot of you know, reeking options for that DH spot. It's not like there's a big fight to get someone in the DH spot rather than Salvi. Yeah, exactly. They they really don't. Um, <laughs> that was that was another thing I, I dug into and just looking at basically all all the people that have played there after Jorge Soler left last season. It's it's just not not a pretty picture. And I mean that that goes toward sort of long term as well. You know, the season is you know I guess you don't want to say fully tanked the third of the way through but right, I, yeah. I don't i don't foresee the royals making the playoffs this year and you know they're definitely in gonna need to to think about the future and you know how you want to preserve you want to preserve perez you want to develop these younger players and just giving everybody time in the right positions is a good way to do that without a doubt now 
what are the offensive metrics that stand out for Salvador Perez when he is the designated hitter? Besides the obvious that playing catcher is taxing for players on his knees and just it's a reckless position, would there be any other benefits for the Royals to have him DH instead of catch? What jumped out for me is just his his power numbers are significantly better at DH, and I can't explain why. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get deep enough to to see what what he's doing uh, differently at the plate specifically when when he's playing the different positions. But and I Ivan was trying to dig into that before we jumped on, and uh, at least for this season, I don't. I didn't see a big difference in, in hard hit percentage or, or anything like that, but somehow he's just getting more extra base hits when he is when he is DHing. I don't I don't know why. <laughs> and right. that uh that continues certainly. It's more stark um as the season goes on. Uh the more the more he plays a DH, the the more that his his power persists through the season. Uh, which is bizarre. I mean I looked it's not just a catcher thing. Like I looked at catcher averages across the two halves and you know, they're pretty, they stay steady. Um, right. So what, whatever it is about Selvi, he gets tired, I guess. Um, but you know, as, as far as your, your question and the benefits of having DH, I think, I think it's what we just talked about. It, it allows you to get some of these other players in the lineup. It allows you to get a, Gallagher is definitely a defensive upgrade over either Perez or Melendez. Um, and it allows you to get Melendez in the lineup more uh, one way or another. So uh, it also, you know, again, looking forward, you move Selvi into more of a DH role. That's one less person you need to buy when you're actually trying to trying to compete. Yeah. You know, one less player that you, you got to trade for or, recruit for and you have these good catchers in your system um again they want to they want melendez around he'll be around they have um they have gallagher there um i think it just it just makes sense from from where they are as an organization yeah i completely agree it's interesting that you said that it's actually not a catcher thing it's a salvador perez thing like i found that very interesting because if it's not all of the catchers getting tired, it's just Salvador Perez. So it makes me think that there's something going on behind the scenes. If I had to guess, not knowing anything about the situation or not knowing Salvador Perez at all, is that when he's behind the plate, he's probably more focused on calling the game and working with his pitcher and figuring out what the sequences are and how they're going to attack the lineup rather than his physical offensive performance. And when he's DHing, I'm sure he's in the dugout with an iPad or something, breaking down the pitcher that he's facing and studying that and being able to focus just on hitting rather than everything else that's going on and what it takes to be a catcher. So that's my guess. But I mean, who knows? Like you said, it's something that you dove deeper into and you couldn't really find anything. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure someone with more sort of savvy and know-how with, with the stats would, would find something. But um, I, I, your guess is as good as mine there. I, I assume some some aspect of it has to be mental um, or maybe, you know, maybe there's just some bizarre confounding variable I'm missing and just the wind blows in the right direction when he's playing DH or something. I don't... <laughs> Baseball is very no weird. Idea. Baseball is yeah, very weird. So I, anything I could no happen idea. right there. You have no clue what goes on with that. It could be anything. I have I have no idea, but uh, yeah, like I said, that, that's that's what I saw. It's there's something there. There's there's something to be found there, but um, it's gonna it's gonna be have to be left to smarter baseball minds than than mine is to to figure that one out. <laughs> I'm sure you're smart enough, but your final point in the article references Salvador Perez's plate discipline. How has that looked this year in a grand scheme of things? Uh, I mean, not good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Salvador Perez we're talking about. I mean, he's, uh, you know, I, I think I used the line in the, the article, like he's not going to turn into an on-base machine anytime soon. But um, he is, let me see, I think he's still striking out at, you know, upwards of a 30% rate and, right. um, you know, swinging at a lot of, of, pitches you know in the, in the shadow zone and chasing a lot of pitches but that's kind of his game and that was also the point in the article um there was a good quote i found from 
um, Mike Matheny, um, that was talking about how he goes out of the zone uh, and is successful outside of the heart of the zone. And, and basically he, uh, I mean, the, the quote was, his strike zone isn't necessarily what's going to be called balls and strike. His strike <laughs> zone is what he can get the barrel to and hit hard. Uh, and certainly, you know, I made the point in 2020 and 2021, he had one of the best hard hit percentages in the league. Certainly 2021 he did. Um, and I also reference a piece by, by Fangrass Ben Clemens that looked into this as well. And the fact that, um, you know, the title of the piece is what Salvador Perez does in the shadow zone. Um, and basically 20, 2020, he really, uh, he was plus eight runs in, in the shadow zone and basically, uh, was finding ways to be successful, you know, doing what we we would call chasing pitches but finding his ways to get bats to him um and then 2021 he uh excuse me that was 2020 that that the article was about and then 2021 he sort of switched his approach and really controlled the heart of the zone and just anytime there was a pitch in the heart of the zone he crushed it um and then didn't do as well uh with shadow and chase and then this year you know it's not looking quite as pretty. He's not. He's kind of not doing either of those things this year. He's he's doing well. He's he's gotten you know he's plus four on waste pitches, so he's still finding ways to get his bat to things that are outside the zone. Um, but he isn't also then compensating for that high strikeout rate by either controlling the heart or getting hits in in the shadow zone as well. So. Um, I don't. And again, that goes. I don't know what his change in approach is. If if he's just if pitchers are just pitching to him a little differently, or you know maybe he's suffering from the, you know the deflated ball phenomena, and as right. soon as things warm up, like his his fly balls will start going out. But um, that's that's kind of where he stands right now. For the listeners that might not know what it is, you reference it a lot. What is the shadow zone? Excuse me. Yes, I was referring to. The stat cast visualization um, of a player's swing profile. So the heart of the zone is just dead center strike zone. Um, and then shadow zone are pitches that are just, uh, you know, could be balls or could be strikes, essentially. Right. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that the listeners, because I'm someone who indulges in podcasts and know things like that. And when I hear something like that, and if I didn't know what it was, I knew what it was. I just wanted you to explain on it. But... If I didn't know what that was and I, no one brought it out, I'd be like, what's Shadows? And then I have to look it up, pause the podcast. So it's good that, you know, we address that. Right. But Salvador Perez yeah. is someone that's been very head-scratching this season because you just drafted a catcher in the third or fourth round and you're hoping that he does better. Hopefully moving him to DH, hopefully Mike Matheny and the rest of the Royals team listens to this podcast or reads your article and switches him over to DH and... He performs like the third or fourth rounder that you drafted him as. I'm personally not too worried about Salvador Perez. I think he'll come around. I wouldn't do anything drastic in your fantasy leagues like cut him for someone else or trade him away for a JT Real Muto or Will Smith. I think that you're going to get really good second half numbers out of Salvador Perez. And I just don't see any other catcher being out there that you could pick up and that would be worth having over Salvador Perez. So... Hold on to your salvies. Hopefully, he'll come around. If he switches to DH, like Colin said, his numbers might just look better. Yeah, if if nothing else, you know, trying to try and get ahead and see where he's getting slotted in the lineup card, and maybe he can just be a real active manager and then get him in on those days and see what happens. Um, but um, also, I I intended to say this at at the outset, but um, I thought one other funny story. The the only comment on the article, I kind of started off mentioning how he uh, earned the home run crown for catchers, and right. the only comment on the article was a long, uh, impassioned uh, <laughs> explanation for for why he is not in fact the home run king for catchers. And I just <laughs> I just want to say. That's not the bone I wanted to pick with this. Uh, it was very much more what we discussed about this just being the right move for the Royals. So uh, for anyone offended by my, my comment there, uh, I you know that was really just to spice up the article a bit. So I, I have no dog in that fight. 
uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is that is not the bone I was trying to pick there at all. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't mean to ruffle any feathers from anybody, and uh, they should just take the article and and indulge it peacefully instead of cause a havoc in the comments. Always leave nice comments, people. That's just give people positive affirmation and say good article. Don't go on this long tangent trying to insult the writer. You know. It was it was very you know it was very matter of fact and very pleasant but really just didn't have anything to do with the content of the article. Yeah, um, they just read which, one which sentence I, and went off on it. <laughs> which which I also appreciate, you know, you know someone's got they've got their opinion, they've got their facts and I I'm, I'm not here to dispute them. You hey, know, if you're passionate, you're passionate. As long as you're passionate about yeah. something, you you rock that. <laughs> yeah, strictly strictly speaking, he is he is not the the home run catcher king. <laughs> Catch your home run king. But that is it for the interview. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Please let the people know where they can follow you on Twitter and if you have any upcoming articles that you're excited about or where they can find you on PitcherList. Yeah, find me at cfong21 on Twitter and keep an eye out for power rankings, the division, uh, AL West division recaps, and uh, you'll see me pop up on, on the daily recaps as well. So just tune, tune in uh, and you'll see me. We love the daily recaps over here. We pull from them all the time in this week in fantasy baseball. So if you do the batter's box or the streaming ones, we always come back to those and highlight them on this podcast. So shout out to Colin. Thank you so much once again, man. Thank you for joining the show. And make sure you follow him at cfong21 on Twitter and check out all of his articles on pitcherlist.com. Colin, once again, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's been a blast. All right. Before I let you all go, I have to give you the streamers for this upcoming week. Now, if you don't know the format, we usually look for pitchers that are rostered in under 20% of leagues on either Yahoo or ESPN. That is our criteria. If they're above that, we usually don't recommend them as streamers, but there are probably better options than these guys. Just keep that in mind. These are the ones that are rostered under 20% in leagues. So we'll start off with Daniel Lynch of the Royals. He pitches on Saturday against the Orioles. He's 4% rostered on Yahoo and 2% rostered on ESPN. Saturday doesn't have many pitchers that are eligible for our criteria that justifies a streamer, so this pick is pretty gross. (laughs) Lynch has been pretty horrible this season with a 5.36 ERA and a 1.54 whip. However, he's close to a strikeout per inning, and he's going up against the Orioles, which don't have a great offense. They're ranked 26th in OPS against left-handed pitching across the league. The Royals will also be at home, which is a pitcher's park. I mean, Camden is too now, but Kaufman has always been decent at limiting offense. I don't love this option, but it's probably the best that you'll get on Saturday with a lot of rostered pitchers on the mound. If Zach Plesak is available in your league, I like him much better than Lynch for Saturday since he'll be going up against the Athletics at home. However, I couldn't recommend him because he's rostered over 40% on both platforms, but if he's out there, use him instead of Lynch, trust me. (laughs) Next, we have Graham Ashcraft of the Reds, who's pitching on Sunday against the Cardinals. He's 31% rostered on Yahoo and 18% rostered on ESPN, so he just made the cut on ESPN. Ashcraft has been amazing since he got called up. In his last three starts, he's gone six innings or more, and he's only given up one run across those starts. He sits at 98 miles per hour with his cutter. Let me say that again. He sits 98 miles per hour with his cutter, and he throws a slider that he racks up strikes with. Ashcraft is nasty, however he faces his toughest challenge offensively since he went up against the Blue Jays in his first start of the season. The Cardinals are a great team, and while I don't expect Ashcraft to replicate what he's done in his last three starts, I think that'll be serviceable as a streamer. I think even more so being how low his roster rate is, you should just pick him up and keep a hold of him while he's looking this good, because he looks great. And last but not least, we have Zach Eflin of the Phillies, who pitches on Tuesday against the Marlins. He's 28% rostered on Yahoo and 16% rostered on ESPN. Normally, John recommends a streamer for Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, but I'm going to do it a little differently and recommend Eflin for Tuesday's game. I streamed Eflin in two different leagues on Thursday against the Brewers, because they don't have a great offense, and he wasn't amazing. He only went four innings with two strikeouts, one earned run, and an uncharacteristically high amount of walks with three. However, next week, he'll be at home against the Marlins. First of all, the Marlins are a scrappy team, but they are middle of the pack across the board in every offensive stat. And second of all, I was shocked when I found this during my research. Eflin is actually a monster at home this season and dreadful on the road. 
In general, Eflin's been good at limiting hard contact this season with a 28.9 hard hit percentage, placing him in the top 8% of the league, and his control has been great limiting the walks. However, at home, Eflin has pitched 31 innings and has a 1.16 ERA with 29 strikeouts and 6 walks. Opponents are only batting 164 against Eflin at home and only slugging 255, even in that hitter-friendly park. On the road, he has a disgusting 8.10 ERA, and opponents have a 357 average against him. That's a pretty drastic split, so Eflin looks like a really reliable home pitcher that you should run out there against the Marlins, and he might even be a two-star pitcher next week as well. I don't know if he's going to pitch two starts, but if he is, he makes for a great pickup, and like I said, at home, he is dominant. So, once again, these are the three picks that I advise you to use if you need to stream. We always tell you err on the side of caution because streaming is a dangerous game. It could either help your ratios and your strikeouts or it can blow them up. So if you need to stream, these three guys we recommend. And hey, they might be great. But that's all for this episode of This Week in Fantasy Baseball. Before you go, make sure that you follow the show on Twitter at ThisWeekPL. If you have any comments or questions, please tweet at us or email us at thisweekplpod at gmail.com. Any questions about fantasy baseball, send them our way. We would love to answer them on the podcast, so please do that. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Regicidal. That's R-E-G-I-C-I-D-A-L. Feel free to tweet at me about any questions you have with fantasy baseball or just to chop it up. I'm always active on Twitter, so I reply a lot of the time, so make sure you tweet at me. And you can follow my MIA co-host, John, at the John Ka, which is T-H-E-J-O-H-N-K-E. So make sure you do that. Also, subscribe to the PitcherList podcast feed and follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcast at. And please leave us a five-star review if you did enjoy the show. Lastly, sign up for PitcherList Plus. By doing so, you can join us in the PitcherList Discord and get advice from all of the fantasy experts and writers over there. But that's all for this week. We'll be back next week recapping another week in fantasy baseball. I'm Lee Keller, and I'll see you in the next one. Later, everyone. Later, everyone.